So today we're going to be, as I say, almost concluding the Olivet Discourse. Uh, I couldn't. I really tried to put it into one sermon, but it's going to be two. So today is part one of two. Uh, We're looking at this last passage, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 uh, to 46. Uh, today's focus is going to be on the, the opening scene in verse 31 to 33. But we're going to read that whole section, section here. So please uh, stand with me. We'll read Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 31 to 46. Uh, and these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, spoken on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats will be on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when, when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, And you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do, To one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are the words of Christ. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to receive the word of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray that your Spirit would uh, enliven us to this judgment scene. Um, That, Lord, that we would, that its message, that its gravity would be revealed and would be known here today uh, in the hearts of those uh, who believe and trust in you and, and, Lord, in those who don't. And that they might turn and, and forsake the way that they are in and see Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, 
So pretty early on, uh, when I got back to, to going out and doing and uh, evangelizing in the streets in Hawkesbury with Tim and Matthew this, this past summer, one of the earlier encounters that we had was a man named Lynn. Uh, Lynn was generally expressing his agreement with our presentation of the gospel, and he explained uh, that he was basically an ex uh, ex Roman Catholic who who professed to believe in Christ, yet for obvious reasons he had become a little disillusioned with the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, and so he wasn't necessarily associating himself with with them anymore. And when asked, he said that he was not in fellowship with a, with a local church. That's usually where, where I'll turn it to, those discussions towards after, once that's clarified that they, they believe in Christ. And, uh, and so, but he said he was not. Um, but he basically he found his online uh, YouTube pastors to be plenty of encouragement uh, for his liking at this time anyways, though he, he, he acknowledged that uh, it's probably time for him to get into to fellowship with some like-minded brothers in Christ. And he, he brought up eschatology, and th- there's a lot of people who do that um, when I'm out evangelizing. I don't know why it is, what the connection is, but it just happens. And, and his ponderings, when, and he does, when he did so, his ponderings, uh, he was t- talking about his ponderings over the end times and and how close we are to the return of Christ. And he was talking about his devotion to Jesus. And being ready for the, for the end times. That, you know, he, he, he was ready. And his readiness basically to die for Christ. Rather than to receive the mark. Or, or any kind of deception that would come. And I mentioned how I've met a lot of people. And I just wanted to encourage him. I wanted to just, I mean I try to avoid getting into all of that. Uh, that, that's not the place. We're, out, we're evangelizing. That's, uh, I, I, my job is either to bring the gospel or to encourage people to go further in the gospel uh, who, who can use that encouragement. And um, so I mentioned to him, to him how I've met a lot of people who will bend over backward to declare their readiness to die for Christ. But then I asked him whether or not he was ready to live for Christ right now where the Lord has placed him. And all I can remember in, a moment, in that moment was of him just being speechless, almost kind of stunned in the moment of, he's just never thought of this, never heard of that concept. And I can't remember if he ever did respond directly to that question or not. But many people around here, both in and outside of the church, they think that it will be easy to pass through judgment on their way to heaven. It would seem that people are more terrified of, the, of, the, of suffering and whether or not they're going to make it through the trials and difficulties of this life than they are about what awaits them in the life to come. And so we make jokes about meeting Peter at the pearly gates where he seems to be ignorant of any true lawful offenses that would prevent someone from entering the kingdom. And many people today will basically believe in salvation by death. Right? It's like, I just, I just got to get to that point of death, and then, you know, then we're, we're in the clear. That's it. You know, then we're, we're good. And so it's everything leading up to that point that worries them, that concerns them. And so long as you aren't an infamous serial murderer or sexual predator, right? 
As long as you're not just one of those extremes. Basically, all you have to do to go to heaven is die with the belief that God will forgive your petty sins. Today's passage flies in the face of all these damning lies that our culture has brought into, uh, brought among us, and exposes the sobering reality of what that day will actually require and, and the process by which Christ will separate the wicked from the righteous forever. The theme of God's pending judgment has run through, uh, even before the Olivet Discourse, we saw in chapter 23, as Jesus was in the, um, he goes into the temple, he drives out the, the money uh, exchangers, right? And then he leaves, uh, he, he leaves, the, or he doesn't leave the temple. Uh, then he's, he gives the seven woes. He pronounces the woes on the, the leadership of the day. And then he leaves the temple and he goes to the Mount of Olives. And then the judgment theme continues all the way through the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24 that we've gone over and ultimately reaching its climax here at the end of chapter 25 and, con- and, the, and this conclusion to the famous Olivet Discourse. The call to be ready for the coming of the Son of Man has increasingly focused upon what is required to be prepared. As illustrated by the fruitful servants in the parable of the talents uh, last week. And now as Jesus concludes his response to the, to the disciples. I just realized I lost my opportunity to say last year. Thank you. And now as Jesus concludes his response to the disciples question. Concerning his coming and the coming of the end of the age. He speaks plainly now. As to the standard of judgment which will determine the eternal recompense of every single human being at this end of history. Christ will come again in glory to judge all people based on their love or rejection of him. As demonstrated by their treatment of his disciples. Those who demonstrated their rejection of Christ will be cast into eternal punishment. Whereas those who evidently love Christ will receive an eternal inheritance in his kingdom. Jesus is no longer speaking in parables, likening some of the key characteristics of his coming to a a particular historical or cultural event, as he's done so to this point, to kind of illustrate the point. But in verse 31, Jesus cuts right to the judgment throne. Right to the judgment throne scene. And so we look at verse 31 together. And this is really just, this was supposed to be the first point of the whole sermon. And so this is, I guess the first point now will be my sub point as we see the Son of Man seated on his glorious throne in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This glorious display is in stark contrast Uh, with the voluntary humility associated with the first coming of Christ. Uh, And and we've seen this so far. We're going to, it's going to come actually, this is is in stark contrast with with what will come after immediately in chapter 26. If you you look there briefly, he basically goes right back to reminding his disciples that he's about to be crucified. Um, 
But the first coming, right, it's, it's, it's all to do with his humiliation. Uh, Isaiah 53 foretold, he, it says that uh, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So there's a stark contrast as we look at where Jesus, where everything is at now, as he's speaking to his disciples and where he's going to the cross. Now Jesus is looking to that that glorious uh, consummation uh, at, at the end of the age when all is complete, all is fulfilled. And here we see the Son of Man coming in his glory. In that first period of his first coming, in, sorry, in this period, in Matthew 26, verse 53, when Jesus is being arrested, Peter draws his sword, right, to defend him. But Jesus reminds him that he could call upon more than 12 legions of angels if it were the Father's will. Of course, he says it's not, and so he's not going to do that. But he's basically reminding him that, Peter, you, you don't, need to worry about this. This, uh, this. I'm still in control here. And so he says, I could call on these angels. Yet here in this prophetic scene of Christ's second coming in glory, what does he say? We see all the angels with him now. In chapter 24, verse 30, talking about, again, and this is, There's going to be different interpretations on this, but if we're being consistent with what I've taught you so far, in chapter 24, verse 30, talking about his coming in judgment with the sword of Rome upon Jerusalem, we see there he is is coming on the clouds, which comes from Daniel 7.13. We've gone over that. Where basically in Daniel 7.13, we see the one like a son of man is clearly coming on the clouds and he's coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days. That is, he's, he's ascending. He's going to the Father to glory who crowns him with dominion and glory and, 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 a, and a kingdom in Daniel 7.13 which I, I believe is associated with his resurrection and his ascension and ultimately his vindication when his persecutors are destroyed and scattered when Rome wiped out Jerusalem according to the word of Christ. In that event, we also read in verse 31, in Matthew 24, verse 31, of him sending out his angels. Again, it it might be just a a petty difference, but it's worth noting that there are differences here. There's, There's certainly similarities. There's overlap. But we see that he's sending out his angels, gathering the elect from the ends of the earth. But as we come now, and so I just believe he's developing this picture, this theme, as the kingdom of God is advancing and coming uh, to earth as it is in heaven. And as we come now to the final culmination of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, at the end of chapter 25, as as it all develops... The imagery has finally progressed to the point where Christ comes and all the angels aren't going out. Now all the angels are with him. When he will, again, we see, sit on his glorious throne. 
So before this, in chapter 24, he was ascending to glory, to the presence of the, of the Ancient of Days. Likewise, in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, it's just a little note that we, we catch. In Acts 7, 56, when Stephen was being stoned, you might recall, uh, and, and he's, he's, about to, he's about to pass. And he, uh, Stephen, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man... Again, not to make too much of this, but he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So even as Christ has been resurrected, he's ascended, now he, is, he sees him standing at the right hand of God. There's certainly a degree of glory that has been uh, given here. But I, I believe there is just, there's just a, a putting, wrapping up and putting the bow on this glory. As we see now, he, is, he sits on the throne And this marks the final triumph of the establishment of his kingdom when he has put all his enemies under his feet. The work is done. The last enemy being death itself upon Christ's second coming will be initiated with the resurrection of both the just and of the unjust here. And so that's, this is, this is, it's all coming to its uh, intended end. And so that's the judgment throne, the Son of Man seated on His glorious throne. Now we see all the nations are being gathered before Him as this scene develops in verse 32. It says, Before Him will be gathered all the nations. Verse 30, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the, the details provided here are slim. And yet I, I do want to point out that I think they're clear enough to rule out Two other interpretations of this judgment, at least with the little time I have to do to rule it out. Uh, for those who interpret chapter 25, I, as we've, you might forget these terms that I've used before, but we have the preterists or partial preterists. Preterist refers to past, meaning that there's a, this, the, the idea that what was prophesied in the New Testament has already been fulfilled in our past. And so you have, but you also have full preterists, you have partial preterists, full meaning everything is already done, everything has been accomplished, everything's passed. You have partial preterists, which is where I would fall more, uh, where I would fall in line with, where I would say uh, there was much, especially with the Olivet Discourse, much has been fulfilled and accomplished, but there is still, uh, as I've said, chapter 25 to be fulfilled in our future. Uh, for those who interpret all, some interpret all of chapter 25 as taking place in AD 70, which would include, there are full preterists certainly would say that. They would say it's all, all of this is passed, all of this is done. Uh, but there are, there are also, some of you might be partial preterists who would say that this is, um, all of 25 is, is referring to Jerusalem's judgment. Where, where Christ's judgment was executed upon the nation of Israel. But I just would simply point out here that it requires, I think it requires, that to, as we fit in this narrative with, what, with that, um, that conclusion, that it requires some degree of theological gymnastic or explanation uh, to where, where the gathering and judgment of all nations would fit into the judgment that was unleashed upon the Jews in, in AD 70 alone. 
right? To say that this was all done, this is referring just to what happened in Jerusalem. Well, here, to me, it seems it's much more global. All the nations are being gathered towards him. Now, on the other hand, as you always have, there's, there's different sides. On the other hand, on the dispensational side, everything is future, and there's this distinction that is made between the Jew and Gentile. Would interp- most many of them interpret, not all, but many interpret this judgment as determining who does or does not enter into the millennial kingdom uh, with the Jews, uh, sorry, who, who would enter into it with the Jews who have been converted to Christ. And so they interpret this as Jesus entering into judgment with only the Gentile nations. So Jesus is, gen- is judging here all the Gentile nations being gathered before him. And again, I, I think an exegetical case, as with the, first, as with the partial preterists or full preterists, an exegetical case can be made as to how that is permissible, how you could see that here. But I'm just going, and, and I mean this, Talking cheap, but but I mean it literally. I'm just I'm going to stick with the literal and plain meaning of the text that is presented to us here, and that is that of all the nations, both Jews, Gentiles, and everything in between, all of them are being gathered before Him. The Greek word for nations here is ethnos. That is right in English, ethnicities, ethnic. All people groups. All of you. In other words, all of you who are here today. Regardless of your ethnic or religious heritage. All of you. All of us. Will be gathered before the appointed judge of the world. And that brings us to the last point. The people will be divided to his left and to his right. Verse 32 continues in. He will separate people. So again, so no, he's gathering all the nations. That is, and he's, so he's making a, a broad a declaration and, and making it clear. Everyone, nobody gets left out here. But he says, in terms of the judgment, it will be individual. He will separate people. One from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So the separation won't be based on your nationality. It'll be based, well, we're going to see what it's going to be based on, but he separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. The emphasis here is upon the separation involved in judgment. There's no middle ground to be found, which of course drives people who know they are guilty of sin bonkers. Right? We always want to find the middle ground when we know, yeah, I did it, but I didn't do it, you know, what that person did, or I didn't do it as bad as I, sh- I could have done it. Right? We, we, want to, we want to find that middle ground, but we see here there's a clear divide, one or the other. They know they've done wrong, but surely, surely you don't deserve the same fate as the really bad people, right? But Jesus makes it clear here that there is a single separation that will be made. Jesus has already said in Matthew twelve thirty, you are either for me or you are against me, 
It's, you can't have one foot in, one foot out. And what divides them will be none other than the Lord Jesus himself. I think that that's, that's, that's clear both literally, like he's the one dividing. And I think there's like just um, metaphorically speaking, Christ is the, he is the cornerstone on which you either are crushed, right? Or you stand. Um, and he is what will divide, be the dividing factor, the judgment to come. In speaking of the separation he will make, uh, that he will make, he uses this metaphor of dividing the sheep from the goats. Uh, with the sheep on the right of his throne, which symbolizes the king's favor throughout scripture. That's just a common symbol, a common uh, theme that uh, we sang earlier in Psalm chap- chapter 110. We sang that psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And, and then, then on the other hand, the goats are placed to his left, representing their unfavorable position before the king. And the imagery is heightened by the fact that the people of God are often referred to as sheep throughout the Old Testament and they have a tendency, and, and, and when you consider it uh, sheep, they have a tendency to flounder without a shepherd. Uh, they tend not to be, uh, and, and if, um, it's too bad Jason's not here, because he, he deals mostly with goats, but he loves to talk about the difference between goats and sheep. And he'll be the first one to tell you, though, that uh, sheep, on the one hand, they tend to not be the brightest crayons in the box. And they, they'll, again, so they'll wander and they'll get lost, but it's not intentionally so, right? It's not mischievous. They, they're, they're, it's because they are only paying attention to the grass that lay in front of them and, they just, and they're just following that path that's in front of them. That, and, and so they'll just wander. Whereas goats are typically known for their cunning and stealthy behavior. Now we have, we have goats this past year um, one is a, the, a full-grown a, a milk goat that we have, as well as a Nigerian dwarf goat. And we had heard that they have a tendency of being escape artists. And we were able to confirm that pretty early on when we discovered that the dwarf goat was basically, she would find her way. We, had to, we, had, we made this little uh, stall in our little barn we have, and she, the way that she would find a way over the gate was by jumping onto the back of the full-grown, of the mama goat. She would jump on her back, stand on her back, and then jump over the gate to get out. But what fascinated me the most about all of, of this in relation to the imagery of the goats representing the wicked here is the fact that whenever either of our goats would manage to break free from where we were trying to contain them and put them, that they pretty much, once they, once they got out, they would pretty much stay in that same area. In other words, it wasn't that they were trying to break out because they were so miserable where they were, right, in hopes of going off to, uh, in search of, of greener pastures. Rather, it seems as though it was merely about the thrill and entertainment uh, associated with getting out of wherever they were supposed to be. Um, there, and, and, and there's no greater purpose 
other than the kick that they get out of being naughty. Right? So again, there's a cunning, there's a wickedness, there's just a, that, that stealthy uh, behavior that is involved there. Well, but before we make too much of the imagery that Jesus is drawing from there, Jesus fully reveals. So, I mean, that's, those are points we can make, but Jesus makes the point clear himself. Fully revealing the, 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 the criteria that he used in identifying and separating those whom he favors to his right and those whom he does not favor to be discarded on his left. And we're going to turn to that next week. But I'm going to conclude with just uh, wrapping this and, and bringing a couple points together here. People today would rather not think of morality and divine justice as being so clear, as being so black and white. You want on, you're on my right, you're on my left. That the division between good and evil is really so vast and so clear cut and as us religious, uh, rigid religious folk would like to make it. We live in a world, and again, we, we live in our own, when I say that, we live in our own bodies. We tend to be, you tend to do this. Where we would like to have everything be more, more gray, if we could. And only, we want black and white, but only when it's convenient for us. Only when that works out. And so, let's keep everything gray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll call things white and gray as, as we go along. Or white and black. It reminds me of the religious subjectivity associated with the ancient Greek uh, mythologies that were um, rampant during Christ's day. I'm currently reading through Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And I've been struck by how every loss or every trying circumstance is assumed to be connected with, they must have displeased some God or another, right? They're always worried, always wondering, something's bad happening, somebody up there must be upset. And the problem is in determining not only which God have I offended, but also they don't know why they've offended the God. And then, how do they make amends with that God? And it's always a roller coaster of a journey in and of itself. And it's, but it's also what makes these tales, they, they're somewhat entertaining as you read through them. And you can see why they've lasted so long. But I find it similar to the various social justice warrior movements and, and uh, um, the cancel culture and these various enemies that we face today that, that would seek to um, um, stamp out the truth of Christ. Where the goalposts of right and wrong, they're constantly being moved. No, There's no solid ground of justice to stand on. And because there is no solid ground of, of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad... Therefore, there's nothing reliable to repent of. Right? There is, there is no real basis in these movements and, and, and these, these self-righteous uh, people for forgiveness and for reconciliation to be found because they're not willing to actually 
stick with a particular condemnation and, and of, of calling certain things out. But everything, it's always shifting. It's always moving. And because of that, people are always, there's no true freedom to be found. There's no ultimate forgiveness to be found in these false religions that surround us today in our world. And I think this is partly what would have stood in stark contrast and perhaps have been a breath of fresh air to the ever-looming yet unclear judgment of the Greco-Roman gods. When Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 29, he stood up in the midst of Athens to proclaim that being then God's offspring, he says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. One God, one eternal and righteous standard of justice, unmoving, being executed on a fixed day in which he will judge all people by the crucified and risen Messiah of the Jews. Verse 32 says that now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you about, again about this. The idea that justice could be executed beyond the grave. The novel idea in their, their thought. But as muffled and jumbled at people, even, even God's own people, some of you, some of us at times, tend to make out divine justice to be. Again and again throughout Scripture, whenever the sword of judgment falls, all mouths are always stopped. The proud and exalted are cut down, and the humble and downtrodden are delivered. For a time, that is usually, right? As we see the ebbs and flows of history, and then the people will forget it. They'll forget God. And then again, they'll follow after what is right in their own eyes until the sword of judgment falls yet again. And the cycle continues. And Jesus is here teaching us and exhorting us that the cycle is going to come to an end. That he has come to bring an end to it. All these demonstrations of God's justice are all going to culminate in this great and final day in which he will judge all people from every nation for all eternity. And again, if you, if you put that against the backdrop drop of the the confusion uh, surrounding the, the Greco-Roman world and the gods there. And again, as I said, in our world today, right? We, people, are, they dread this. They, they, they hate this idea of there being this, this judgment that is so clear-cut, so black and white. And I'm saying, when you compare it to whatever, what the world is offering you, there's no more gracious and merciful thing God could, could do is to tell us there is this judgment coming and this is what I expect. And this is what I require. And this is what you can do to be forgiven and to be, and, and to be free from it. No other religion offers such clarity and certainty and assurance of salvation. But it requires that we be clear and, and unmoving on his judgment. 
what he condemns on our sin and calling our sin what it, calling it what it is. And the determining factor as to who the sovereign judge will or will not be pleased with. We're, we're going to go more into those. We're going to dig into those, those details. But as, I, as we just do it over a bird's eye view and sum, summarization here to conclude. Will not be determined by your response and treatment of your fellow man alone. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, yes, I'm going to get to the point that justification is by faith. It's not by what we do. But there is a very important point that's being made, and so we're going to try to we're going to stick with that. But it's not we see here. It's not determined by your response and treatment of your fellow man alone, nor how you measure up to a particular standard, a particular law alone. But first and foremost, it is your response and obedience to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ alone. Isaiah 40 verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In John chapter 1, 24, Sorry, John chapter 10, 24. So the Jews, they gathered around Jesus and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. The works that he's doing bears witness about who he is. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So today if you hear his voice, if you know with more certainty than anything else, that the words I have spoken to you are true. Do not delay another day. Repent of your sin and the path of destruction that you've left in your wake and believe in the crucified and risen Christ and follow him and be saved from the wrath of God and the path of destruction that currently lies before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for you are a God that does not change, that you are a God of justice and righteousness and your truth remains the same and you are the same yesterday, today and forever. And Lord, it is us. We are changing. We are shifting. We are not, we, we are ever moving and Lord, that is generally to our shame. But Lord, it is also it also presents the hope, Lord, that, a, that ruin, a ruined sinner such as I could be saved, could be changed. That uh, those who are dead in their trespasses can be made alive in Christ. 
And so God, as we consider, we ponder this, um, the concept of your judgment, it's not just a concept. Lord, I pray that your spirit would present its reality to us, its imminence. Lord, as we've said, and I've, noted, I've mentioned before, whether or not you return in, in our lifetime or not, we know we're going to meet you in our lifetime. We, we, know, we know our appointed day is much, it's sooner than we, we, any of us probably realize. And so, Lord, um, again, we pray that you would prepare us as, as you have taught us and led us through in these scriptures. That we would cast ourselves, our faith upon Christ alone and him holy for our salvation. And that you would quicken us and move us. That we would bear the fruit of repentance in our life. As we, as we look to that day and as we look to serve you. And you look to the coming of your kingdom when you will return in glory. Lord, that we would, you would empower us by your spirit. That we would, we would be busy doing the work which you've called us to do as your sheep. Who are under, your, who are under our shepherd. God, we ask these things so that Christ, as we know, he, he is exalted and will be um, eternally exalted on his throne. Exalt him today in our hearts and in our community and in our families and in our homes and in the, in, 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 the, in the world today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.